Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you're listening to Ratchet and Respectable with Demetria L. Lucas. O-M-G. I have such a treat for you. If you follow me on Instagram or even on Facebook, about a month ago, I reposted an article by a woman named Danielle Thomas. You might know her as the unfit Christian. Sometimes people tell me that they wake up in the morning and they go to my page to see what I had to say. She's the person who, when I wake up in the morning, I go to her page. The unfit Christian never lets me down. In reaction to Billy Porter, not so much his gown, but the people who were complaining that it emasculated black men, she wrote this scathing read. I'll read you the whole thing. I don't think she'll mind. She says, your emasculation is due to absentee fathers who didn't raise you into men and mothers who treated you like her man instead of her child. Your emasculation is due to you thinking that your 6 to 15 strokes inside the vagina measures your manhood. Your emasculation is due to your willingness for unprotected sex, but a deep hatred for court-ordered child support at a bare minimum. Your emasculation is due to your inability to provide for your household without asking your partner for 50-50. Your emasculation is due to women outpacing you in education, entrepreneurship, and salary, but you still expect her to carry full domestic duties while you, quote, be the man of the house in name and explicit sex expression only. I told you it was filthy. I'm not done. Your emasculation is due to your failure to work out your stunted emotional intelligence and trauma with a therapist, but instead expecting every romantic partner you have to repair you. But you can rest assured that your emasculation is not because one black gay man decided to remind you that he's wholly black and gay by wearing a tuxedo gown. And for folks who had a problem with what she had to say, she concluded, argue with the girl who is still walking in the spirit of pick me about it, not me. I posted this and on my page alone, 87,000 people Read it, responded, clicked it, forwarded it, did something with it. It had over 1,100 comments on my page. That's not even her page. I was told that it's not PC to say spirit animal. So I need to find another word that that is that equivalent. Maybe my sister spirit. Friend in my head. That'll do. So I felt like Danielle, unfit Christian, was a friend in my head. So I tracked her down and was like, sis, we need to chat. And she was like, sis. We do. So I asked her to come on the show and she gratefully obliged. So that's what today's episode is. We'll talk about pop culture next week. There's a lot to say about about Wendy Williams, who, since we're being Christian-like today, is in my prayers. Wendy got on TV on Tuesday and she said that she's living in a sober house. She's talked about her addictions over the years, but she's had a relapse. Ma'am just took a significant amount of time off getting herself together Her season started on time, but she had guest hosts for the first, what, like three weeks, a month. She came back. She's dropping N-bombs on live television. There's speculation that that this is all caused by her husband, 20-some-odd years, and the alleged affair he's having with a younger woman. Apparently, when, when Wendy was down in Florida resting, she was allegedly in rehab, and her husband went to visit her. And took his mistress down there with them so they could have a vacation. Look, 
I'm not going to call him out his name. You know what name I want to use. I want to use the same name that Wendy used to talk about people fighting on Fifth Avenue. God's worked on me. I don't use that language. Not when the record button is pushed. So let's let's send up a prayer. Again, no tea, no shade, no malice. An honest prayer for Sister Wendy, Auntie Wendy, whatever Wendy is to you. However you feel about Wendy. I don't want to see a woman struggle with addiction, have emotional issues, have physical issues. I don't want that for anybody. Let's let's pray that Wendy gets healthy for herself, for her child, for her show too, because Wendy's Wendy's been around a long time. She fought a good fight to get this show and to maintain it. I hope she can pull it together, genuinely. And I want to talk about Randall from This Is Us, because that Negro done lost his whole mind. But we'll get to that. Next week's episode of This Is Us is supposed to be strictly about Beth and Randall. So I'll do a whole moment on Randall next week. Promise. That said, I'd like to introduce you to today's guest, the unfit Christian. I'm goo gobs excited about this interview. Hi, Danielle. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm awesome. It's an awesome overcast Sunday in the suburbs. As here as well in Atlanta. So maybe it's just a mood. Hey, why are you not at church? The Lord and I have a long distance relationship. Okay, great. Me, me as well. Because <laughs> when you sent me the times, you were like Sunday between like 12 and 5. And I was like, oh, she don't go to church either. Okay. Well, on Sundays when I do the treadmill, I, um, I listen to gospel. So today is a Yolanda Adams day. So that will be my mm-hmm. communing with God. And we have an ongoing conversation, but that'll be our specific time together today. And guess what? God respects that, too. Yes. And on the Stairmaster, right after the treadmill, I listened to Luke. You know, God is also in Luke. God I'm is, trying to you know, I, I, was, <laughs> I was this close to quoting a Luke lyric, and I was like, I don't think God would like that one. It's so, the gospel of Luke, ain't it? Luke is in the Bible, ain't I, it? There was a Luke, wasn't there? There was. I was like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Look, that's the Bible. I'm that's going somewhere with this. There you Matthew, go. Matthew, Mark, and John, you good. You good. He clearly had a praying grandmother. <laughs> Oh, well, it's so awesome to speak with you. This topic is so, what's the word, fraught for me. Yeah. And I think you'll you'll probably agree. I was raised in the church similar to you. Your father was a pastor. My grandfather was one, so I'm being raised by a PK, like, you know, you. And so, like, my background is very heavily in religion. But, you know, like we just said, like, I haven't been to church in a month of Sundays. I have a very close relationship with God, but not so much with religion these days. Talk to me a little bit about how we arrive at at unfit Christian. As you stated, you know, I grew up as a PK, grew up in the church, very much a black churched woman. So I use that to underscore church versus attending church because there's a whole culture that comes along with black church, right? So I was a black churched woman coming up with all of the accoutrement of being homophobic, queer antagonistic, pretty much every form of oppression that I as a black person could engage in. I definitely engaged in because that was the root of my religious teaching. Got to college, started learning things outside of the pulpit, right? And was like, okay, well, this makes sense. This makes logical sense. I agree with this, but it doesn't agree with the teachings that I have been taught in religious spaces. So that tension just became a whole lot. And I had to figure out 
whether I was going to reconcile and figure out how to make God exist within these new parameters of life that I was learning, or if I was going to do away with God altogether as a concept for me. Because what I wasn't willing to do was to throw away this new learning, this this new ideology that helped me to love people and to understand people as fully human and fully holy, regardless of what certain religious texts or certain interpretations of religious texts, I should say, would have us to believe. What was the the turning point for you? Was there a moment where you were like, mm, this ain't all lining up anymore from like what you've been taught and to what you had started to know? Because I know for me, I went to a really great church here in D.C. and it had a big white Jesus when you first walked in the entrance. Big white Jesus, blonde hair, open hands, you know, the Jesus stance, blue (laughs) robes, light blue turquoise kind of robes. And I think I saw Malcolm X in theaters when it came out. And I walked in church one day and was like, why we got this big white Jesus here? I didn't have the language to describe why it wasn't working for me, but I was like, mm, I'm kind of with this God in my own image thing. And it, it started with why isn't Jesus black? And, to, and then it went to why is Jesus or God a man? Like, why, if it's in my image, why can't it be a woman? Like, I don't understand. And then it started progressing from there. I think the real defining moment for me was probably in about my early 20s. So maybe my sophomore year of college. I grew up in a very pro-black household, so it wasn't like I was unaware of my history before hitting campus. But just understanding, I think, the significant contributions and the shaping of black women in the church um, and our black church culture and realizing how much that was downplayed and and thinking about purity culture. So I was very much adherent of purity culture. For those who are not aware of that, that's all of the folks who are like, I'm saving myself for marriage and I'm only going to be with one man for the rest of my life. And it's very much scared and centered towards women. And that tension between seeing women being so powerful in both the civil rights movement and the black power movement and seeing us as black women historically leading the efforts to fight against injustice for our community made me start to question why are we not more present in the pulpit? Why do we fill out the pews, but we're very absent in the pulpit? Why is it that a lot of the sermons that I'm hearing in my church are geared towards telling me how not to be the downfall of a man or how I pretty much the penultimate point of my womanhood is all about how I can get married and have children and be a dutiful wife? Why is it that we're so powerful? I see us historically and even present as so powerful in leading these movements and fighting oppression. And yet we're being silenced in churches. We're being told that the woman should not speak. We shouldn't preach. We shouldn't do these things. Who is gaining from our oppression and why is it being done in the name of God? So that for me made me want to begin to reimagine what God could look like if she be for me. So I changed, you know, God's genders pronouns. So sometimes I'll say he, but a lot of times I'll say she, because I'm reclaiming God. If I'm in the image of God, I want to understand God and the biblical text and everything else that comes along with it in a way that centers my full identity. So I wasn't getting that in the traditional church space. So I said, well, hell, I'll forge my own space and explore what that looks like because Even if I'm the only person doing it, I have to do this for me or else I'm going to have to say I can't do this God thing anymore. 
I have very similar conflicts for you. And, and it's so interesting. You mentioned the goddess, the she thing, because that was like a huge, huge one for me with like the father, the son and the Holy Ghost. And I'm like, so is the Holy Ghost a woman? And we're just not going to call the Holy Ghost that because like we get a father, we get a son. Like, how do we get a son without a woman? We need a woman here. What does spirituality and or religion look for look like for you now? I'm now I call myself an interdisciplinary Christian. So I, I, I have the foundation in the core of Christianity. It's what I grew up with. So I you could take the girl out of church, but you could never take the church out of the girl. Right. But it has also pulled in other belief systems that feel like a good fit for me. So I'm exploring Ifa. I'm exploring um, Buddhist principles. I take Chew the chew the uh, meat and spit the bone, right? So I take what fits, what I feel like aligns with my purpose. Because the whole thing I want to do um, is to remove any blocks that do not allow everybody corporate access to God. And I do this work so that everybody knows there's room at the cross for all of us, no matter how different your approach to God is. So that includes my brothers and sisters who identify as atheistic and agnostic. I have a large population in my audience that does identify as such. For a lot of traditional Christians, that would be the sign that you're a heretic. For me, it was a sign that I was doing something right. If people who were like, hey, I'm I'm good on this God shit, could come and look at my work and go, you're making sense. And so often I've heard, I've had these people tell me, if I had met you, the kind of Christian you are before I decide to walk away from the church, I probably wouldn't have walked away. So for me, it's a reminder that I am doing things to create that corporate access. And I am doing so in such a way that centers my blackness, my femininity, my wholeness, uh, my sexuality. So I'm very much uh, sex positive, sex affirming, uh, LGBTQIA affirming. But I I root a lot of my talks, so a lot of some of my more viral posts and more popular conversations are about sex because it has been such a stronghold for black Christian women, for black saved women. We have this historical bias that treats us as purely animistic, uh, sexualized objects. And then we have church spaces where we're just like, we want to be good. We want to be saved. And we're being taught that in order to do that, we must deny our pleasure. So at no point, either historically or religio-culturally, do we have a space where we own our bodies. So a lot of my work is around destroying that tension because to me, that is one thing that does not give us corporate access. Um, Then, you know, holding us accountable about how we talk about our LGBTQIA brothers and sisters, like you can't say God is love and then in the same next breath say that God hates this person because they love someone um, in a way that does not mirror cisgender heteronormativity. All of that to say that my faith and uh, spiritual walk at this point is all about how do we rearticulate the biblical text, the religious experience in a way that liberates all, not just some, but all of us. If it don't fit, then it's just not part of what I would say my faith walk is. Every once in a while, like I'll dive into like a religious conversation, like I'll talk about some of the more problematic, let's throw, I don't want to, messaging, I don't want to call it like preaching, but messaging from, from John Gray, because he's super popular and, and he says some really problematic things at times about women and wives. And I'm like, sir, 
stop. Whenever I delve into those conversations, I get a lot of pushback from, I don't want to say the Christian community. I want to say like the, the, the self-righteous Christian community. I don't want to, you know, indict all Christians. My conflict has always been that there's been, there is a very narrow perception of what it's like to be a Christian. And while I definitely mm-hmm. consider myself one, I don't adhere to a lot of the more popular values. So some of the things that you mentioned about sexuality, you know, obviously, but also submission has always been a big one for me. Girl. <laughs> yeah, I was like, we do a whole topic just on that. But just the idea that, you know, like my role is to prop up a man, essentially, like be a helpmate, you know, like, you know, help his dreams come to fruition and blah, blah, blah. Or he's the leader, head of household because he has a penis and it's it's biblical, allegedly. Right. Um, right. I'm just like that. That doesn't jive with me. What do you say to being a Christian who doesn't subscribe to some of the core tenets of the belief systems of Christianity? I say to that, is it a core tenet according to what the text actually says or what folks have manipulated to say for their benefit? Because this is the same religious structure, Christianity as a whole, right? That justified our enslavement, that justified our rapes and and murder by lynching, that has justified several global atrocities in the name of Jesus. Just because we can use the text to justify it doesn't make it right. And that's the argument I get get often. So it's funny that I'm using that, but it's true. Like you can manipulate that text to say whatever you want it to. Um, But that is why I operate in the principle of there's the scriptures, then there's your morals and your ethics. So you have to do a little bit more than just say the Bible says, okay, that's, that's cool. That's one thing. But what do our ethics, what do our morals say? What informs those things so that we can better articulate the text in a way that is relevant to today? Because we use a lot of this, the Bible says, and we forget that those things that it was saying was not necessarily meant for 2019 or 2024 or 2042 and so on. It was meant for that specific time in a specific cultural presence in a specific event, particularly Leviticus, which folks love to use against our LGBTQ folks. But forget that that was a Levitical code that was specific for the Levites as they were crossing over into the promised land. But we like to use it as if it's relevant to today and it's simply not. So that's ultimately what what I say is, okay, the Bible says one thing, but what do your morals and ethics say? What does our sociocultural needs say? I think we emphasize overemphasize submission too much on the part of women. We forget the labor that that women do. And I say we as both men and women, I think we as women, especially church women, forget the labor that we do in these churches. Baby, if we all make a mass exodus, won't be no church, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) Because there's like, we make up the majority of every major black church congregation in this country. And I'm pretty sure if we expanded it, it would look that way across the world. And other black congregations, not like not Black American, but other Black congregations. So we have that power, but we often forget it. And in the strictly American normative, the church is the last bastion of power for Black men. It is where they can get this level of 
worship and adulation and respect that they do not get outside of the pulpit. So they guard it fiercely. Um, That's why a lot of us, especially women who talk like me, will never have a seat in these pulpits because they are scared that we might wake up the women in their pews to go, wait a minute, she owned to something. There's been such a push from women to be like, hey, we exist. We make up the congregations like let us in positions of power. It makes no sense to have a congregation full of women and only male leaders. But they, like you said, guard it very, very, very fiercely. I think it was your blog about Aretha Franklin's funeral and Mm -hmm. how there are no women sitting in the pulpit. So I tweeted about it. We didn't see women come into the pulpit, the ones that were seated on the platform. So those that were actually in the pulpit on stage were not women that we know to be vocally identified as womanist or feminist. When the women were present, we sang. We, we may have said a few words of reflection, but we weren't the stars. It's interesting that you have a man to get up there and eulogize a woman and use that opportunity to tear down pretty much everything that that woman was. You talk about single mothers and how black women can't mother black sons, but yet you were eulogizing a woman who had four. You're talking about, you know, what women should and should not do, but you were eulogizing one of the most influential icons of our time. And so I'm not surprised because he represents the old vanguard. He represents that good old boys club and network that has been formed amongst black clergy, regardless of denomination. But Amongst black male clergy in our country, this idea that, you know, they are the all authority. And again, it's about protecting and exerting power that they could not or would not otherwise have um, outside the pulpit. I thought at the time and like how much different that eulogy would have been if a woman had given it. Black men are often trying to rearticulate American heteronormative patriarchy. So basically white male patriarchy and the way that it is set up and it exists and has oppressed them. And now we have the audacity to, to try to emulate that, to replicate that in our own community. And I'm like, bro, it wasn't working for them. So it sure as hell is not going to work for us. We come from matrilineal lineages. We come from, you know, societies wherein the women were not silenced and we led shit. We ran shit. So why would we try to, and it worked for us. So Mm -hmm. why would we be so oppositional to that? It's not a matter of women should be in charge over men or men should be in charge over women. That's not my ideal. My ideal here is respect the, the intellect, the contributions, the whatever good it is, respect wherever it comes from, regardless of gender identity, because I'm only thinking in binaries. But of course, we've got to think about all the folks who don't fit in the binary and those who have gender identities that are outside of cisgender identities. So Respect wherever it comes from, but unfortunately, it's still like this power grab. And I I often ask, do we want to be free or do we want to replace the oppressor because we just want power? Do we want freedom or power? And unfortunately, it seems like a lot of us demonstrate more of a desire for power structures rather than freeing structures. I want to go back to something that you said when speaking about the um, the minister at, uh, at Aretha's funeral. You referred to him as old vanguard. Mm-hmm. And I wondered if it's it if it really is old vanguard because I think about say people like Jamal Bryant, right? He gets in the pulpit and he says, you know, these hoes ain't loyal. Like what? 
Right. <laughs> like right. it's like it's so it's it's old Vanguard, but it's also new Vanguard. Like, you know, there's probably a good like 35 to 40 year age difference between those ministers. But the, right. the threat of sexism is still alive and present and thriving between both because they're mentoring them so you know this is like they're being brought up by them so you're right it's not exactly like the old vanguard is that we can hope it can die it's just like we keep talking about with racists like well they're dying out no they're breeding um they're creating (laughs) new folks and they're passing that ideology along and it's happening in these you know backroom conversations it's happening on phones it's happening in the pastor's offices i've been witness to them so i'm not talking what i don't know um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these these enculturation of the good old boys club and women as objects and women as revenue, right? Because you want to keep them in your pews. You want to give them just enough power to say, okay, well, we'll put them in certain leadership positions. So they might lead the hospitality ministry or they may lead the nurses guild. But and if they're in the pulpit on a Sunday, they're just going to be continued guardians of our patriarchy because we're only going to let in the ones who will say exactly what we've been saying, but just in more of a feminine touch way. With Jamal Bryan in particular, he's kind of like a, he does good things. And then he's also very problematic in many, many ways. I struggle with him because I I admire his love for the black community. But if I could just get him to marry that up with some more feminist leaning ideology around women and, and what our purpose is, he might be in good shape. It was interesting for him to say hoes ain't loyal. And I'm like, sir, yeah, I was, <laughs> Do like, to point out the obvious? I was like, you don't want us to run the receipts because we run the receipts. You ain't loyal either, sir. That's how I feel about John Gray, too. Like, I go kind of hard on him sometimes because he says some really problematic things and he deserves it. But I also think that at his core, he's a good person. I think John Gray is an interesting case because I he's he is a prime example of someone who has been conditioned and trained to teach a thing that he's not sure if he believes. He gets up here and he teaches and says one thing in the pulpit and we know that he's living a whole different one because it's interesting for you to tell me not to walk in the spirit of a girlfriend when you kind of got a girlfriend and a wife. And like so many preachers and like so many believers, so many of us have not interrogated our beliefs. We are practicing an inherited religion. My mama believes, I believe what my mama believed and and her mama believes, I Mm -hmm. believe what. So we keep passing this generational thing on. Same thing happens with preachers. Everybody ain't called to preach, but because their daddy was a preacher, they somehow think that mantle was passed on to them. But that's shade for another day. We keep this this cycle of not interrogating our beliefs and some of us get in the pulpit and preach things we're not even sure we understand or aligns with what we really believe at our core, aligns with our morals or our ethics, because it's what folks have always said. So, of course, it must be right versus saying, OK, yeah, I know folks have always said this, but does it make sense? Does it fit for today? Is this who God is still to us and for us. It's so much more comfortable to stay with what you know than to take the risk of questioning everything. Because when you start questioning faith, you go down a a rabbit hole. You just can't avoid it. You have to question everything that comes with it. And I think more people are scared to lose a belief in God than to say, maybe I could just understand God in a better and different way and approach it that way. But here we are. 
like the same struggle that you see in, in John Gray. Like I also feel like it exists in, in Bryant as well. And I would respect them so much more if they just said that, like, I'm not really sure about some of the things that I was taught. If you were just honest and walked in your truth, I could respect it so much more because we all have those those conflicts and those struggles, you know, like everyone right. has a person they'd like to be. And there's a vast, you know, gap between that and the person they are. It's, it's human. Church and ministers fail their parishioners, their followers when they when they pretend they've got it all together and they don't. Right. Right. And also when That's they blame everything on the devil, because that whole like I cheated and, and his wife was like, the devil made him do it. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> no that was a that was a willful that was- decision on your husband's right. part. Agency, and you know, free will. I'm already, I'm already going to hell, according to most of them, because I actually don't have a concept of hell in my personal theology. So I, I think hell is in the imagination of folks who need retribution for things. And it's part of our whole idea that everybody must be punished. But then I try to remind people that you are the villain of someone's story. So there's someone who's wishing you go to hell, too. Did you see the article in The Atlantic about Black women who are turning into witches? I think it's interesting because (laughs) I talk about this all the time. So much of church is ritualistic. We just don't call it that. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. I find it fascinating how many Black folks will be like, oh, that's that witchcraft. No, it's not. It's like we're drinking wine and calling it the blood of Jesus. Like, stop. We're doing a blood ritual every first Sunday, literally. Some churches, they're doing it, you know, on a more frequent basis. I come from the Black Pentecostal charismatic tradition. So, you know, we're speaking in tongues. So spirit possession. We're shouting spirit possession. We're telling people turn around four times, seven times. Like these things are rituals. And the only difference is, is that now people are adding in the actual calling a thing a thing. So call it a ritual and adding in the the, the participation of of um, root work. Um, a lot of I hate to tell people I hate to burst buckles, but a lot of your grandmothers who was praying in the church also had a lot of root work going on. They knew how to uh, put them herbs together and and dress those candles and they knew what to tell you to take and to mix together. And they knew about freezer spells and they they knew about honey jars. They knew about sweetening situations. And a lot of us have tried to say to demonize that now, or we've allowed churches and pulpits to demonize that. But a lot of us are standing on the shoulders of people who knew how to do that work to see people, quote unquote, returning to it. I just think people are literally understanding and putting the pieces together to say, I've been doing rituals. If they come from a Christian tradition, I've been doing rituals all my life in church. This ain't nothing new. To my point earlier about only taking what you've been spoon fed until you interrogate and ask the questions yourself and say, does this align? Does this make sense? Of course, you'll keep believing this idea that things that got you over and carried you here are now suddenly demonic and barbaric or whatever you want to name it. No, this is just part of our culture. This is part of who we are. And I'm glad that more people turn into it. Do you watch Greenleaf? I do. What do you think of the show? I do. I enjoy Greenleaf and I specifically enjoy it because it shows that all that glitters isn't gold. It gives to me a pretty good, not completely 100% accurate, but a pretty damn good look of what it looks like behind the pulpit. I think most parishioners only see the front end and how everything comes polished together. But I love like when um, Bishop and May be arguing right before service and then they walk into service like nothing happened. Mm-hmm. I'm like, child, that happens more often than you know. 
I love seeing Grace um, struggle with the tension of coming back to church, answering her call, and even still trying to maintain a full humanity. I love that they normalize sex outside of marriage. Um, It wasn't a big deal. We knew Grace was having sex with her partner. We saw uh, Charity engage in sex after her divorce. Like, I like the way that it was subtle in in normalizing things. Oh, particularly its demonstration of uh, homosexuality. I thought that was really great. Lots of facets, but I really enjoy the show because it does a great job of teaching without being too preachy. My favorite character is Grace. Sophia gets on my nerves. I can deal with Zora. Sophia and her... But Sophia is just like, girl, please get over yourself. Like, she's self-righteous about everything. And I'm just like, girl, you yeah. driving me. <laughs> just like, yeah. Just like, I know you mean well, Sophia. I know you're young. But Zora's young, too. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Zora's also, like, the most beautiful person I've ever seen, like, ever in life. That's a gorgeous child. Isn't she, though? Do you ever think about going back to church? I'm finding a hard time going back to church, even though I miss the fellowship. I don't want to be loved in pieces. I don't want to be loved in parts. I don't want somebody supporting some of me while also telling me to change a core part of me. I don't think there's a church out there around me that would give me everything that I'm looking for in terms of justice for everybody and preaching and teaching in a way that is inclusive versus worrying about um, who we going to condemn to hell. Like, again, that's a, that's a power struggle. It's a matter of saying that we're better than somebody else. And I'm not interested in that. I don't need to be better than somebody else. I need everybody with me to help fight against these systems that oppress us. And I want to understand God as a God of the oppressed versus God oppressing people because they don't love the way that somebody else said they should love or they don't look like this. They don't behave this way. I don't need that. I need spaces that affirm all of me, including my worship and religious space. The fellowship is the same thing that I miss. Like I miss yeah. the chorus of people. I miss the the, the energy, literally like the energy of a whole bunch of people Absolutely. praying together or worshiping together. I miss hearing hymns lined. I miss hearing uh, everybody coming together in corporate praise and worship. I miss the high energy that comes when the spirit does swell in the sanctuary. I miss those things. And I try to find spaces that still give me that, even if it's not in the traditional church space. But I'm, I just miss the, the coming together. I miss the familiarity. Like there's just certain things and, and, and shit that just happens only in church that you have to be church to understand. So those, those things that create those inside jokes. And I, I do wonder, like, if I do decide to have a child at some point, will I be able to enculturate them in that way? At this point, I... I don't want my child to have to go through the same transformation and transfiguration, basically, of ideology because you were raised in one really negative one and you had to go and relearn and divorce all these isms that came with your God just to say that they had a church experience. I do miss the fellowship, but I can't put myself in harm's way and I can't imagine advising someone else to put themselves in harm's way by attending a church that may be hit or miss with its, its mission for justice. We saw what happened with the United Methodist Church. So what happened? I'm not aware. So the United Methodist Church, of course, um, 
in its general assembly, there was a plan to, there was a one church plan and there was a traditional plan. And this was all about affirming its LGBTQ clergy and, and members. The one church plan wanted to keep the United Methodist Church as a body, of course, as one body, and just allow at the church level for each um, parish to decide how they approach LGBTQIA affirmation. And the traditional plan, of course, um, ran with this idea that um, it is traditional, it is biblical to teach uh, against homosexuality. And I hate the term traditional because to me that always implies that this is law when really it's just this is the way we've been doing shit over and over again and nobody stopped to pause and ask if this is a good tradition or not. They rejected the one church plan and traditional plan won out. So I don't find this to just be a black church problem. This is a church problem. Yeah, Um, It is a Christian culture problem. Religion is is used as an opiate. I hate to say it, but it is. And a lot of the ways in which we teach and, and process and apply religion to our lives is used to help arm the systems of oppression among us. I don't see it getting better anytime soon because, again, do we want power or do we want freedom? Why do you think women keep showing up at the church despite all of the issues that we've talked about for like the last 30 minutes to an hour? It's familiar. As much as the church has its issues, there's still a community of support. Now I'm switching back into the black church experience. You could go to a church mother and she's going to say, I'm praying for you, baby. You you have men who you feel like are at least protecting you from some measure of harm. Um, depends on the church you're in. We we love the fellowship. We, we find our friendships with women in church. It gives us a base and a foundation to share with our uh, other girlfriends who may not attend church with us. So We all have that same common denominator and common factor. And ultimately, as I've mentioned before, most of us just want to be good so bad in a world, particularly where Black women are vilified each and every day as some negative connotation. We, we're too loud. We're too mouthy. We're too, we ugly. We look like, like we got all these, this shit that comes up about us every day that makes us not good. And so we aspire to be seen as holy human. And for many of us, we think that begins and ends with our religious faith. So we keep turning to the church in hopes that that will set us apart, that, you know, God will at least see us as good. It's bad enough that the world doesn't see us that way, but maybe if we keep attending church and we keep coming in fellowship in this community, that maybe God will give us, will see us that way and give us redemption and death. I hate to make it that morbid, but I feel like that's probably what drives a lot of us, just that desire to still be good in some way, in some capacity, because everybody desires that. Everybody wants to feel good at some point. That was a lot. I'm sorry, girl. No, 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 not in a bad way, but just sort of like, like, why do people show up? That was not the answer I was expecting, but that's the answer that at its core makes the most sense to me. Because it's not because you're stupid and it's not because people don't get it, but people get something out of it and people want an affirmation. And even if you have to endure negativity to get an affirmation, if that's where you get it, that's where you go. Chew the meat, spit the bone is what a lot of us are doing in these congregations. And then some of us, of course, we 
as a survival mechanism, we become guardians for patriarchy. We become guardians for misogynoir. We just say, we start to say what has been said to us because it garners us some measure of proxy power, not real power, but proxy power. And for some of us, that's just enough to survive and to navigate and to keep some sense of sanity because we're already spending our time fighting on every other front. Some of us just don't feel like fighting on that one. And then some of us do. And I'd like to think that those of us who are willing to fight are numbered enough and passionate enough to liberate all of us. But in the words of um, Iyanla, I'm not going to fight nobody for their healing. I will fight systems of oppression. But if you don't want to be free, that's cool. I just, all I can do is pray is at some point you do. At some point you recognize that there is still space for all the things that you feel like you're getting in this place of bondage, that it exists and it exists, not only exists, but exists in a greater form outside of bondage, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Danielle. Welcome. I appreciate you. Where can people who are interested in hearing more about you following your work, where can they find you? So I am on all social media at Unfit Christian. So that's Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can check out the blog at unfitchristian.com. You can also check out my podcast, uh, Gospel for the Culture. It's on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Oh, one more question for you. How do you mm-hmm. deal with the backlash? Because before we started rolling, I was talking about the extreme backlash that comes anytime I talk about Christianity in any form. I could praise Christianity and people be like, you're not a good Christian. I'm like, sorry, what? <laughs> How do you deal with that? I deal with it in knowing my truth and knowing what I'm walking in. And I amplify the voices of people who tell me that what I'm saying resonates more than those who are trying to put me in a heaven or a hell of their own making. I know the truth I'm walking in and I see the results and the fruit of my truth. So somebody telling me you're going to hell, you wrong, you a heretic. Okay, honey, what have you done to draw and to bring light and to liberate by saying that? Nothing. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming to speak with us today and we'll talk soon. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you again. Bye-bye. Bye. Wasn't that dope? I love that chick. This is my favorite part of my job, me being a friend in my head to so many of my faves that I can call them up and be like, hey, you want to come talk to me? I don't even tell people the agenda anymore. I'm just like, you want to just come talk to me? I'm going to record it. We're just going to we're going to kiki. I think I said in a previous episode that I am at my best when I am pursuing knowledge, when I am learning, when knowledge is being poured into me. I had a couple aha moments today. I hope you did, too. So. As always, thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, then please leave me a review on whatever platform that you are listening to this. Again, I am in the middle of a cross-country move. The podcasts are going to be a little erratic for the next, I would say, two to three weeks or so. I'm going to do my best to get one up every week because folks had like a legit serious meltdown when I went, was it two weeks, 12 days? How long did I go without posting? Folks was mad. So I understand that for some of you, this is part of your self-care. I take it very seriously. I'm just in packing hell right now. And then once packing hell ends, shipping hell, trying to get all my stuff from literally one coast to the other. I could do a whole podcast on the hell of moving. Oh my God, I hate moving. I hate moving. I hate packing. Oh my God. I stayed at my last apartment for 15 years 
just because I hate moving and packing so much. And it was rent control. I'm going to stop talking about that apartment because it's a sensitive subject. Okay, I will talk to you soon. In the meantime, Instagram, Facebook, not so much Twitter. I get on there every once in a while, but you know, I miss you. I love you. We'll talk soon.